Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. So today we are finishing our series, uh, and, and I'll, I'll be honest, uh, I have really mixed emotions about today's message. Uh, I have uh, been hesitant, even resistant, to speak on this topic, uh, even though many of you have asked me to do it. And at the same time, I'm also excited, because I know what I'm going to talk about today made such a difference in my life, and I hope it will make the same kind of difference in your life today. So we're in the last message of our series, Outside Influence, in which we've been studying the book of Daniel, and we've been primarily asking the question, how do we live as faithful, winsome people, even in the most difficult of situations, in the most difficult of relationships? Because that's really the theme and the lesson that Daniel teaches us. But Daniel is of this prophetic book, and uh, over half the book actually deals with prophecy, much of it already fulfilled uh, in history, but there's a lot of that prophecy that deals with what we refer to as the end times a lot of times, or in theological terms. We talk about it as eschatology, which means we're studying the return, the second return of Jesus at the very end of time when he does away with all of the sin and everything that's going on in the world and finishes restoring things back to perfection for us and creates this and renews this new world for us to live in that is sometimes referred to by many of us as heaven. It's this unsettling topic because of this feeling of the end, even, even of judgment associated with that. And um, we study this a lot of times from different perspectives. Some of you out there study it a lot, and you study it from the perspective of trying to understand how historical events are lining up with what the Bible teaches so that we can know whether we're living in the end times and be ready for Jesus to come back. Some of you have read the book, and you've read the end of the book, and you figure we win, and that's all you need to know. And you don't really want to study this topic anymore. Some of you haven't really thought about it or studied it at all. And some of you aren't sure you care to study it because there's so many confusing different views out there. Now, what we're talking about today is certainly not central to our salvation and, and relationship with Jesus. However, I do think that what we're talking about today is really vital in terms of us being able to find that place to live a life of peace apart from anxiety and in the joy that God wants. And I think it also has a lot to do in shaping how we relate to the world around us and how we think about this topic. So a couple of final caveats before we jump into the message full focus. My focus today is primarily on how we approach understanding the Bible and all the Bible passages about this issue. I'm not going to get deeply into all the different aspects of end times theology and all the debates that go on there. And I'm also assuming today, and you may not agree with this, but just you'll need to hear me from this assumption then if you don't agree with it. I'm assuming that we all agree that Jesus is indeed going to return someday and he's going to set things right. He's going to finish what he bought and paid for by doing away with sin, by freeing us and restoring us to a sinless state, by dealing with how sin has affected creation. And associated with that, there will also be a final judgment associated with that that we all have to deal with as well. So I'm assuming we agree on those things. Let's get into it. 
Today, uh, in the end of the day, we're going to get back to the book of Daniel, but I'm going to actually spend most of my time today with you in Matthew 24 because Jesus there outlines in, I think, simpler, more concise terms many of the ideas that Daniel talks about, but Jesus also does something different. He focuses this entire discussion in Matthew 24 and 25 on how we interpret the Bible and how we should then live and how it should impact the way we live based upon this concept of the end times. In fact, if you study the gospel, well, you would realize that this is actually one of Jesus' longest sermons. It covers two chapters just in total with no, I mean, it's just one sermon, one big point on the end times and how should we then live in relation to this topic. And that's what Jesus is doing. And Jesus' teaching here shaped my perspective of how to approach this topic more than anything else. Now, since Matthew 24 is really long, Let me summarize uh, and highlight some key verses along the way as I summarize it. Jesus starts out in Matthew 24 talking about how there's going to be all about these signs of his return. And he warns us that there will be many people who will come along and they'll say, here Jesus is and there he is and they're going to be false prophets is what Jesus says. And he says there's, in verse 6, he says there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. And in verse 7, he says there's going to be famines and there's going to be earthquakes. And in verse 8, Jesus says this. He says, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now, let me pause there for a second. Oftentimes, uh, the people who study the Bible on this topic from the idea of, of trying to figure things out, try to answer the question, are we living in the end times? And that's a big question for a lot of people. And those who answer it say that if we're able to answer, that we have to answer it based upon these things, that the Bible in this passage, they say, seems to say that there will be an increase in wars and violence. There will be an increase in famines and disease killing people. There will be an increase in earthquakes. And they argue, if they say that we're in the last days, most of them argue saying those things indeed are increasing in the last century. And therefore, we must be living in the last days. There's a a couple new books that came out recently, a guy named Steve Pinker from Harvard University and a guy, Joshua Goldenstein from Amherst and American University, did a major research works and wrote their findings about the history and the trends of war throughout history and violence. And here's actually what they conclude. They actually conclude that the past 10 years, as violent and tragic as they have been, are actually the most peaceful years in the last 100 years in the world. 100 times less violent than World War II, three times less violent than the Cold War area, two times less violent than the 1990s. In fact, they actually argue from their historical research that the 20th century was no more violent and actually likely less violent than most of the centuries prior to that. And as one example, one of their many examples, they talk about the 17th century and the fact that in the 30 years war alone, one third of Germany died in that war. And they go on to say that the evidence from previous centuries and even the scant evidence from prehistoric wars indicate that over one-fourth of all men in every generation died from war. And that's not including civilian casualties. So they argue that, that, that that's decreased, actually. Pinker actually goes on and talks about interpersonal violence outside of war, things like homicides and other violent crime. And he says that, that according to the actual studies, violent crime has decreased 35-fold since the Middle Ages in every European country where there's any kind of statistics or, or stuff to study to even look at. 
And hunger is on the decrease, according to the UN. And the USGS confirms that earthquakes are steady. Now, they're recording more each year, but that's only because they're putting out more sensors globally and picking up earthquakes that they never measured before. But the actual large earthquakes remain steady at about 18. So the question, are we living in the end times? Maybe we are, but not according to these measures. We aren't, if those are the measures that are important to us. Now, we may hear more and we may see more difficulty in the world because of the 24-7 news cycle, but the reality is that the reality is different than the perceptions in the world today. Matthew 24 goes on in verse 9 and says, and says this. Jesus continues to talk about an increased time of tribulation for his followers. And again, he brings up the idea that there will be a rise of false prophets and that many believers will fall away from their faith because of the increased difficulty and because of the false prophets around. And then he says this in verse 13. He says, But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. We'll come back to that verse a little bit later. But verse 15, Jesus goes on and he starts to talk about this reference that we actually find in the text of Daniel. We'll hear it a little bit later in Daniel. He talks about this reference of an idea called an abomination of desolation. And then Jesus goes on again and again says there will be more false prophets who will say that Jesus has returned. They'll say he's come here, he's come there, or they'll claim to be him and that we should not be deceived by them. Why? Because Jesus says in verse 27, he says this, For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. What he's saying there is the second coming of Jesus, the end time, will be blatantly obvious. You won't be able to miss it. Now, I remember being in fourth, chi- fourth grade. I was a bit of a weird child already at that age. I was, uh, even at fourth grade, I was studying like crazy everything I could find, reading every book I could find on the end times and all this kind of stuff about trying to line up history and understand where we living in the last days. And I was home by myself one night and the rest of my family was at church and there was an unusually big lightning storm and they were late getting home. And I'm standing upstairs about an hour after they're supposed to be home, looking out the window at this amazingly, one of the biggest lightning storms I've ever seen in my life. And I'm going, I missed the second coming. My family's all gone. I'm really messed up here. And, uh, you know, this verse, though, says we're not going to miss it like that. It's going to be blatantly obvious. We cannot miss it. Verse 29, Jesus goes on and says, it describes the second coming in more detail. And he starts to talk about things like signs in the stars and the sky. And then he goes on to say how great and glorious his power will be when he comes back to gather his people to him. And there's some people today who look at these signs and they say, well, then we should study things like the blood moons. That's a real common thing that people are studying right now. And, and how they relate to how we predict whether we're in the last days so that we can be ready for Jesus. But Jesus moves on then, and he he goes away from talking more plainly to talking in in a metaphor, and he says this. He says, now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. And in a little bit, we'll see Jesus repeat this idea, and he says we should add to that, not only should we look for the signs, but we need to learn to be alert, and we need to learn to be ready. 
So the central question actually for us in trying to even interpret how do we understand the end times and how do we come to a place where that impacts the way we live is this question. What does Jesus mean when he commands us to know the signs, to be alert, and be ready? Now, what many people interpret that is, is that we should know how the historical and cosmic events are lining up with what the Scripture says so that we know whether we're in the end times and we can be ready for when Jesus comes back. And when we look at the Bible, in the end times passages, there are so many enigmatic word pictures. There's seals and angels and demons and horses and wars and plagues and bowls and scrolls and so many other imagery type things that, that the Bible talks about in regard to the end times. So many people to try to determine, is this, is this treaty or that treaty? Is this war or that war? Is this plague or that plague? Are they the historical fulfillment of one of these images? And others look at the cosmic signs and like we mentioned before, they'll ask, is the upcoming blood moon the cosmic sign that indicates Jesus is coming back soon, that we're in the last days. And further along that line of thinking, uh, one of the things that comes out is a big discussion that Jesus actually doesn't touch on in this passage, and it's this idea of trying to find out who the Antichrist is or when the Antichrist will show up. But there's this idea in the Bible that there will be this one great evil leader who will gather nations uh, into uh, and spread evil all over the world, and eventually Jesus will come back. There'll be a great war called Armageddon, and Jesus will end things and destroy evil at that time, move it from the earth. And there's a, a whole lot of process and, uh, and different ideas about how that is. So just please accept that oversimplification of how, that, how I just presented that. But what we see from that then is, is people look at Russia moving into Syria and they try to equate that to fulfilling an end times imagery. Or we see this particular, a particular terrorist movement or maybe some people are looking at the recent agreement with Iran and, the, and they say, well, this falls in the order of the Old Testament or of, of Daniel or Revelation indicating the, the last times and they spend a lot of time assessing who might be the Antichrist. And this approach is what I believed growing up, and I studied it rapidly, rapidly. But this next slide indicates kind of how, where that kind of scholarship takes us. This slide is a picture of everyone in the last 75 years who has been proposed by a significant theologian of this type to have been the Antichrist most likely. It represents every single president of FDR except for Gerald Ford. He, he escaped that. A, a real popular target when I was growing up was Henry Kissinger and, and Arafat and all the other Middle East leaders you see there. And over on the far right, a common guy that's being talked about right now is the, is the uh, prime minister of Greece, this failing Greek state who's really charismatic and a lot of people think he might be the Antichrist. And, and then, of course, we have Hitler and we have Mao and we have every single Russian leader ever to, in the last 75 years. And, and don't forget the popes. Every single pope, and I may have forgotten one of their pictures up there, every single pope in the last 75 years by different theologians taking this historical lining up approach have, have been accused of being the Antichrist, right? This approach shows up in thousands of, of books. In fact, you think this is a lot of pictures of people up here. I could have put two more slides of that number of people up if I would have had the patience to do the research because there have been so many other up-and-coming charismatic leaders who by respected theologians of this type of interpretation have been hypothesized as the Antichrist just in the last 75 years alone, right? 
The thousands of books written on this subject. One of the big best-selling ones when I was uh, when I was in my later years of college was 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. Anybody remember that book? In 1988, I was working my, through my, my way through my second master's degree, and uh, I was working my way through by working at UPS. And so I was working like 3.30 in the morning. Nobody was awake at 3.30 in the morning. And it was somewhere around September 1st, 1988. I don't remember the exact day. When my direct supervisor, who was normally a brash, outspoken, really, he was, a, he was the tough guy. He was the tough guy. He comes up to me visibly shaken while the belt's running by with packages. It was just this really odd, uncomfortable moment because as the packages are running by, he's wanting to bear his soul to me while I'm trying to keep up loading my vehicle. And it was just kind of uncomfortable. And he goes on to say, Ross, what do I do with this? My parents came to my house last night and they handed me their keys. They handed me their safe deposit box keys. They handed me their account numbers, their passwords to all of their financial things, their life insurance, everything else. And then they just basically said, you need this because we're going to be raptured between September 11th, September 13th, and you're not going anywhere with us on that rapture because you're a sinner. You don't believe in Jesus. So, And they walked up and left him sitting there stunned. And he didn't know what to do with it. Didn't know what to do with it. Now, I wish this were an isolated incident, and it is a more extreme incident than many, than many of the experiences that we can talk about, but it begs the question, What is the fruit of this kind of approach to interpretation of the Bible and understanding the scriptures? Does it increase our pursuit of relationships with people who oppose us? Or does it help us live with more, as as more contented and more vibrant people? Or does it make us more anxious and more self-protective in the way we live? And what does it communicate to our culture about who we are as Christians? Well, in this case, if you don't know the end of the story, Jesus didn't come back in 1988, right? We know that. And so this same author wrote the next year, 89 reasons why Jesus is going to come back in 1989 because I forgot one. And then every year since then, for many years, he kept writing an updated report, a yearly updated report. As I studied writings of this kind growing up, and I studied a lot more reputable ones than this guy. I kind of make a little bit of fun of this guy, but I've studied a lot more reputable ones of this guy. It raised a key question for me. Is this really how we're supposed to approach the Bible on this subject? When I was growing up, there were lots of movies about this kind of thinking about the rapture that scared many people into following Jesus, and some of them are listed up there on the side. And there was the, the book Late Great Planet Earth, which sold over 15 million copies, and the Orson Welles done movie of that, Late Great Planet Earth. In fact, uh, this is kind of this is just kind of an aside, funny. The staff loved the graphics for this one of the many ones that Kristen has done great on. They love this one as one of the best. But when Wendy saw this, this is all she could see. Because that movie scared her so bad that she was certain she was going to be left behind having to deal with torture and all stuff. And honestly, when I read this stuff, most of the time it left me scared spitless growing up about life. And, and, you know, sure, the reality is many, many have come to faith because of this kind of fear mixed with a gospel message. And the reality as well is that there is a respectful, healthy fear we need to have for God and the reality that there is an end to life as well. We need to have that kind of fear in our life. But I know so many people who came to faith through this kind of fear who it took years, if not decades, 
before they could see God as truly kind and patient and loving instead of harsh and a fearful, distant person. And I know so many other people who came to faith through this kind of fear, who the fear eventually led them to abandon their faith in God. Now, certainly that does not apply to everyone. I know tons of people whose lives have been dramatically changed by people and specifically by people who have preached this way and they've come to God through that. The question is, is this really the way God wants it to be? Or is this just another example of God working through our imperfection and making good even out of our imperfection of understanding of stuff? Is that really the way God wants to work? There are, these are questions I ask myself as I wrestle with Scripture. And I wrestled with the fruit that I see, saw in my life and I see in so many other people's lives. There are thousands of books that follow this line of thinking. What happened in Russia and what happens, what's happening in Israel, what's happening in America, what's happening in Europe and what's happening in astronomy and how do these things fulfill what is said so that we can watch the historical events so that we can know when Jesus is coming back so that we can be ready. Because we're trying to follow Jesus' command to us in Matthew 24. But if you go back through the the archives of the publishing houses for the last century, you're going to literally find thousands of books littering the floor of the archives who all basically predicted wrong. The events, the people they identified as the Antichrist are dead. They were wrong. The, the nation movements that they said were indicative of, of indicating that we were in the last days no longer exist. The signs that they said that they, that, fulfill, that, that were filled and fulfilled in the heavens or elsewhere and have changed and they no longer apply. The books are wrong. And is that really what Jesus wants us to spend so much time on? Is that really what Jesus means by watching the signs and being alert? In my own questioning, I began to think, if that is what God wants, then one would think the Holy Spirit would create more agreement. And I had to ask myself, since there is not more agreement, is this really of God or not, this approach to how we understand the text? There's so much speculation that leads to so much anxiety. Hal Lindsey's book came out, and I read it, and we all knew that the end was definitely near. Again, it sold 15 million copies, which especially in the 70s was, like, amazing. I mean, nobody else had ever sold that much at all. Uh, We knew the end was near. We knew that Jesus was coming back in the 1970s. If he didn't come back in the 1970s, he was for sure coming back in the 1980s. Some millions of Christians, my family was one of them, created barrels full of food for survival in our basement because we were sure that there would be a nuclear war with Russia and that that would leave us isolated and evil would be abounding as the tribulation began and as, as, the, as we approached time of the tribulation, the Antichrist seized power. So we had our five big barrels holding up our homemade ping pong table full of food to care for our own needs if that happened. But Paul warns Timothy, Timothy twice, once at the very beginning of his, of his first letter to him and once at the very end of his second letter to him. He says, avoid things that lead to much speculation because it is unprofitable for your faith and unprofitable for your life. More importantly, would you consider this as we read what Jesus himself says about this attempt to know that the end will happen? Verse 36, but of that day and hour... No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Did you hear that? 
Jesus says that he himself, the second member of the Trinity, doesn't even know when this will happen. He doesn't know the time. And then he goes on to talk about Noah as an illustration. The point of that illustration is life will be going on as normal until all this happens. It'll just be going along like normal. So the question for me is why do we try so hard to line up events that Jesus says are impossible to know even for him? It's a tough verse, and it's a very serious question that Jesus poses to us. Jesus reemphasizes this later, six verses later. He says, therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. You don't know the time. You don't know. You will not know when. Allow me to suggest from Jesus' life in his own words that knowing the signs and being alert to understanding the historical signs related to the events has nothing to do with what Jesus is asking us to be in terms of understanding signs and being ready. First, think about it from the prophecy perspective. If you study biblical prophecy and if you study how God speaks to us today through personal words or through prophecy, it is very rare for God to use prophecy in a way that predicts things very clearly ordered up front so we make our decisions based upon them. The purpose of prophecy is primarily confidence-building, confirmation of God in our life after it's been fulfilled rather than specific direction in advance. Now, emphasis on primarily, because we can all find exceptions like, like this. I can find the exception like when even in our own verse where it mentions the abomination of desolation. Jesus refers to that, and that in 70 A.D., the Romans are sacking Jerusalem, and they actually uh, destroy the temple, and they offer a pig on the altar, bringing an abomination to the Jewish religion. And because Daniel said this, because Jesus repeated this abomination of desolation, the people knew what it was, and it, history records that many Christians fled and escaped that uh, event in Jerusalem. It can predict even the future. We even look at Prophet Samuel when he talks to to King Saul and anoints him. He says, there will be X, Y, and Z that will happen on your way home. And it's very obvious, predictive. We know it's going to happen. But most prophecy, most personal words from God are not meant to be as clear as a GPS giving you turn-by-turn directions from A to Z. It's much more general than that and most often not fully understood until after it's fulfilled. And it serves the role of confidence-boosting confirmation for us. I mean, think about it, even from Jesus' life, the very first coming of Jesus. They struggled to recognize him as the Messiah. And even when they finally began to recognize him as the Messiah, they had no concept of what that meant. They had no concept of the cross and the resurrection until after it happened. And even then, they needed an explanation. But when they understood The power of that confirmation took those guys through the rest of their life to endure tremendous hardship for the mission of God because it proved so strongly to them that God was alive and powerful and well. I remember receiving personal words about uh, a prophecy about my transition from Tulsa to Eugene many years ago. And those words guided my passion and they guided my hope. They confirmed the general sense of, of giftedness and calling in my life. But they did not guide the particulars of the decision in advance. In fact, I didn't even understand how powerful those words were until months after I was already in the new job. And then it became this amazingly strong anchor in my life of God speaking. And I have a theory as to why that's true. And this is my theory. It's just my theory. 
I think God knows if he tells us too much that we're going to try to make things happen, that we're going to try to create self-fulfilling prophecy on our own time instead of remaining dependent on God and letting his power make things happen. Most often, prophecy or personal words to us from God are clear enough to help us desire the right things, to pray in the right direction, but they're not clear enough for us to easily take control back. Instead, we only understand them when they're fully understood, and I think that applies to this. But there's a more important reason. I think this is the most important reason. Jesus goes on to tell us what being alert and what knowing the times are to be focused on. Verse 45, he says, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I, tell, I say to you that he will put, put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat the fellow slaves and eat, a drink, eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In the, that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you really look at that text and what Jesus says, he says our inter- focus of interpretation or understanding the times and being alert is to be focused on, uh, on people, not on history. It's supposed to be focused on people. And even again in that text, he emphasizes we will not know the time. In fact, if you outline this chapter alone, uh, you'll see that Jesus says repeatedly, I want you to understand the signs and the time and to be ready. But then he immediately follows that every time he says that with, but you won't know the time. In other words, what he's saying is you won't know the historical timing based stuff of all this and how all this relates. I'm telling you, there will be world things going on. There'll be cosmic events going on that will create tribulation or fear for you. But you don't need to worry about that. You won't know the time. I want to point you in a different direction. Uh, he, he actually makes that argument four times. I would argue five, but I don't have time to explain why I think five in this chapter. And if you look through his entire message of the, of the two chapters, he says this seven times in his one message about trying to make one point of how we respond to this teaching. He says, be ready, know the signs, but I'm not talking about historical things and the time of those things. He acknowledges there'll be tough stuff, but that's not the point. Here's your focus, he says. I have put you in relationship with people. And I want you to understand the signs and be alert to where I'm showing up there. So why do we put so much effort in discerning time-oriented questions in this regard? God intensely loves people, and he wants our whole focus to be on that, like even Daniel was in the difficult time of Babylon. See, knowing the signs is knowing what God is up to and caring for the people around you. It's being diligently other-focused instead of falling prey to the trap of being self-focused and and, and wanting our own comfort when things are difficult or pleasure-seeking in our own lives and, and having this desire to escape the difficulty of the world, which oftentimes inadvertently separates us emotionally and even relationally from the people he's put us in relationship with when we have that feeling. So what does it look like to be person-centered in the way Jesus says? It looks like you praying for your five. 
and looking for God to show you the signs of how he's working in their life and making openness in their life so you can reach them and care for them and love them and continually asking God for opportunities to care for them. It looks like God opening our eyes to know the signs of need and openness. It looks like you caring for your difficult boss or your or your colleague that's difficult. Instead of treating them like others treat them, you, you treat them really graciously with a great dedication and commitment instead of treating them like they deserve. You are like Daniel to them. It looks like bringing meals over to your friends in your small group. It, it may look like joining in the Project 29-7 and either becoming a, a tutor or becoming a big brother or a big sister through that effort and, and caring for people God puts in your path. It looks like caring for your family and knowing the signs and being alert to the opportunities that you have to make a difference in loving them into knowing and understanding God's love for them and experiencing His kingdom. It's refusing to allow yourself to be greedy to, or to fall into avarice instead of and, and instead to use your finances for generosity, to to lay up wealth and lay up treasure in heaven by using it in an appropriate way for God. Because if you're found doing these things, that's what God means by being alert and knowing the signs. And that makes God really happy. Alert and knowing the signs is person-centered. Knowing and understanding the signs of how God is working to reach the people that he's put you in relationship with in your life because he won't come back, referring back to our verse earlier, he won't come back until his mission to people is complete. And that's where he wants our focus to be. It means taking time to read books and to listen to friends, to understand how people in our culture make faith decisions and make decisions as to what is truth and understanding those trends, those signs, so we can be alert and respond appropriately. It means refusing to get discouraged while waiting for things to be better or wishing for our escape from this world and instead to fight that discouragement and by choosing to serve and by choosing to love. See, one of the concerns that I have that, that, that affects not everybody, but affects far too many people who take the approach of trying to line up history with Scripture is that so often I see the fruit being fear instead of courage and the fruit being bunkering instead of engagement. Not always. There are a lot of people who don't fall prey to this who still believe that. But I see a lot of people dealing with higher levels of anxiety instead of peace by studying this. And it causes us to look at our world and the history going on around us and it causes us to focus on the bad and all the bad and how it's all stacking up to horrible tribulation instead of focusing on the good and the possibility for influence God has for us, even in difficult times, in difficult relationships like Daniel. Instead of believing that God overcomes in this world, it becomes too easy for us to believe that everything is going to get worse and worse until we get to escape this trash pit of a world when Jesus comes back. And in Daniel... After God tells him about all these end times visions and, and the interaction ends like this. Look at Daniel 12 and verse 8. It says, as for me, Daniel's talking, I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. In other words, what he's saying is don't worry about figuring these things out. They're going to be concealed. That's not what I want you to pay attention to. Then God goes on and says, Many will be purged and purified and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. 
From that time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days, which the main lesson there is he wants us to, to persevere. He wants us to persevere in hope and strength in the now, not, not with a desire to escape. We want the hope for the future, but we don't want the desire to escape, to rule our life. And he goes on and concludes this way. He says, but as for you, go your way to the end. And then you will enter into the rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. And he's saying basically to Daniel, he's saying, do what you're doing, Daniel. Live the way you're living, serving and loving your enemies really well. And know that you will receive a promise in the end. You see, it's no coincidence that, that, that God has one of the most significant portions of prophecy about the end times in the book of Daniel. Because Daniel himself is living in a time that's not at all unlike the descriptions of what the tribulation will be in the end time as prophesied. And Daniel's mature faith and focus is something God invites us to emulate in the way we are living, whether we're in the end times or whether we're not. See, actually, history records that many of the Israelites during the same time that Daniel was living wailed and moaned about all their losses and about how, how they, the, the good old days and wishing that God would hurry along their redemption and get them back to the place of, of being a prosperous nation at the, end, at the end of time. They wanted the glory days back. But that's so much like we're tempted when things are difficult to just focus on the complaint and focus on the pain and the losses and our desire for a better life. And when we get focused on that, when we get focused on our own comfort, we become like the unfaithful servant who does not recognize the relationship opportunities that God has put in our life and how we are empowered to serve and love and care right there. But Daniel, like Jesus, came into difficulty and he saw even his enemies as loved by God. And Daniel took that to heart what he heard from Jeremiah, that we pray, pray for the peace and prosperity of the land in which we live. And as difficult as it was for him serving unpredictable, maniacal, pagan, difficult, even evil at many times kings, he loved them well. In fact, he was more committed to their welfare than they were committed to him. And in so doing, he served God really well. And many of the people he served came to faith. God brought great good through Daniel's life. And God wants us to be alert, to know the signs of him working through you and among the people he has placed you in relationship with, especially the difficult people. And if he finds you faithfully serving them well, great will be reward. So if you want to be alert, you want to know the signs, you live and you want to be a faithful servant, study people particularly the kind of people that are immediately in your relationship network that you rub shoulders with every day of the week so that you can be the influencers God designed you to be. Be alert to what sidetracks you from that focus so you can remain an influencer for God in those settings. I just want to ask you a second just to pause if you need to close your eyes to, to focus for yourself because you get ADD by looking at everybody else then just close your eyes. And I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, how are you asking me to respond? I'm not asking you if you have been of the line of changing histor- of trying to line up history. I'm not demanding that you change that view. But I do think God wants to speak something to you through this message.
What does he want to speak to you? Lord, I pray that <clears throat> I pray that you'd come with your Holy Spirit. I pray that right now for the people in the room who have been bound up in anxiety and you're speaking to them about the anxiety because of the way they've been approaching understanding this, Lord, I pray for your peace of your spirit to just fall right now. For the ways that we've allowed ourselves to withdraw and just hope for escape, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to engage and find the power of your spirit in our relationships now with a greater freedom. For the way we bought into things have to get worse and worse instead of you overcoming, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to reframe our, our hearts and our minds on you, the God who can work even through Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar to bring great good and to overcome no matter what things are like that we would live as people who lead the world in hope and faith because we know you're coming again, but we even know more so that you're here now. And that you would teach us to have the wisdom to understand and the insight to see how you're working in the people around us and that you would create in us the ability to be influencers for your kingdom more and more every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest podcasts, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org.